Chapter 48 Now from apex to base, the volume of the Great Pyramid in cubic inches is approximately 161 billion. How many human souls then have lived on the earth from Adam to the present day? Somewhere between 153 billion and 171 billion 900 million. Piazzi Smith, Our Inheritance in the Great Pyramid, London, Ispister, 1880, page 583. I imagine your author holds that the height of the Pyramid of Cheops is equal to the square root of the sum of the areas of all its sides. The measurements must be made in feet, the foot being closer to the Egyptian and Hebrew cubit, and not in meters, for the meter is an abstract length invented in modern times. The Egyptian cubit comes to 1.728 feet. If we do not know the precise height, we can use the pyramidion, which was the small pyramid set atop the Great Pyramid, to form its tip. It was of gold or some other metal that shone in the sun. Take the height of the pyramidion, multiply it by the height of the whole pyramid, multiply the total by ten to the fifth, and we obtain the circumference of the earth. What's more, if you multiply the perimeter of the base by twenty-four to the third divided by two, you get the earth's radius. Further, the area of the base of the pyramid multiplied by ninety-six times ten to the eighth gives us one hundred and ninety-six million eight hundred and ten thousand square miles, which is the surface area of the earth. Am I right? Belbo liked to convey amazement with an expression he had learned in the Cinematheque from the original language version of Yankee Doodle Dandy, starring James Cagney. I'm flabbergasted. This is what he said now. Allier also knew colloquial English, apparently, because he couldn't hide his satisfaction at this tribute to his vanity. My friends, he said, when a gentleman whose name is unknown to me pens a compilation on the mystery of the pyramids, he can say only what by now even children know. I would have been surprised if he had said anything new. So the writer is simply repeating established truths? Truths! Allier laughed, and again opened for us the box of his deformed and delicious cigars. Quid est veritas, as a friend of mine said many years ago. Most of it is nonsense. To begin with, if you divide the base of the pyramid by exactly twice the height and do not round off, you don't get pi. You get 3.1417254, a small difference but essential. Further, a disciple of Piazzi Smith, Flinders Petrie, who also measured Stonehenge, reports that one day he caught the master chipping at a granite wall of the royal antechamber to make his sums work out. Gossip, perhaps, but Piazzi Smith was not a man to inspire trust. You had only to see the way he tied his cravat. Still, amid all the nonsense, there are some unimpeachable truths. Gentlemen, would you follow me to the window? He threw open the shutters dramatically and pointed. At the corner of the narrow street and the broad avenue stood a little wooden kiosk where presumably lottery tickets were sold. Gentlemen, he said, I invite you to go and measure that kiosk. You will see that the length of the counter is 149 centimeters, in other words, one hundred billionth of the distance between the earth and the sun, the height at the rear, 176 centimeters, divided by the width of the window, 56 centimeters, is 3.14. The height at the front is 19 decimeters, equal, in other words, to the number of years of the Greek lunar cycle. The sum of the heights of the two front corners and the two rear corners is 190 times 2 plus 176 times 2, which equals 732, the date of the victory at Poitiers. The thickness of the counter is 3.10 centimeters, and the width of the cornice of the window is 8.8 .8 centimeters 
Replacing the numbers before the decimals by the corresponding letters of the alphabet, we obtain C for 10 and H for 8, or C10H8, which is the formula for naphthalene. Fantastic, I said. You did all these measurements? No, Allier said. They were done on another kiosk by a certain Jean-Pierre Adam. But I would assume that all lottery kiosks have more or less the same dimensions. With numbers you can do anything you like. Suppose I have the sacred number nine, and I want to get the number 1314, the date of the execution of Jacques de Molay, a date dear to anyone who, like me, professes devotion to the Templar tradition of knighthood. What do I do? I multiply nine by 146, the fateful day of the destruction of Carthage. How did I arrive at this? I divided 1314 by two, by three, etc., until I found a satisfying date. I could also have divided 1314 by 6.28, the double of 3.14, and I would have gotten 209. That is the year in which Attalus, the first king of Pergamon, joined the Anti-Macedonian League. You see? Then you don't believe in numerologies of any kind, Diotalevi said, disappointed. On the contrary, I believe firmly. I believe the universe is a great symphony of numerical correspondences. I believe that numbers and their symbolisms provide a path to special knowledge. But if the world below and above is a system of correspondences where tout se tient, it's natural for the kiosk and the pyramid, both works of man, to reproduce in their structure unconsciously the harmonies of the cosmos. The so-called pyramidologists discover with their incredibly tortuous methods the straightforward truth, a truth far more ancient and one already known. It is the logic of research and discovery that is tortuous because it is the logic of science whereas the logic of knowledge needs no discovery because it knows already. Why must it demonstrate that which could not be otherwise? If there is a secret, it is much more profound. These authors of yours remain simply on the surface. I imagine this one also repeats all the tales of how the Egyptians knew about electricity. I won't ask how you managed to guess. You see, they are content with electricity like any old Marconi. The hypothesis of radioactivity would be less puerile. There is an interesting idea. Unlike the electricity hypothesis, it would explain the much-vaunted curse of Tutankhamun. And how were the Egyptians able to lift the blocks of the pyramids? Can you lift boulders with electric shocks? Can you make them fly with nuclear fission? No. The Egyptians found a way to eliminate the force of gravity. They possessed the secret of levitation, another form of energy. It is known that the Chaldean priests operated sacred machines by sounds alone, and the priests of Karnak and Thebes could open the doors of a temple with only their voice. And what else could be the origin, if you think about it, of the legend of open sesame? So, Belbo asked, Now here's the point, my friend. Electricity, radioactivity, atomic energy, the true initiate knows that these are metaphors, masks, conventional lies, or at most pathetic surrogates, for an ancestral forgotten force, a force the initiate seeks and one day will know. We should speak, perhaps, he hesitated a moment, of telluric currents. What? one of us asked, I forget who. Allier seemed disappointed. You see, I was beginning to hope that among your prospective authors one had appeared who could tell me something more interesting. But it grows late. Very well, my friends, our pact is made. The rest was just the rambling of an elderly scholar. As he held out his hand to us, the butler entered and murmured something in his ear. Ah, the sweet friend, 
Allier said. I had forgotten. Ask her to wait a moment. No, no, not in the living room, in the Turkish salon. The sweet friend must have been familiar with the house, because she was already on the threshold of the study, and without even looking at us in the gathering shadows of the day at its end, she proceeded confidently to Allier, patted his cheek, and said, Simon, you're not going to make me wait outside, are you? It was Lorenzo Pellegrini. Allier moved aside slightly, kissed her hand, and said, gesturing at us, My sweet Sophia, you know you are always welcome, as you illuminate every house you enter. I was merely saying goodbye to these guests. Lorenza turned, saw us, and made a cheerful wave of greeting. I don't believe I ever saw her discomposed or embarrassed. Oh, how nice, she said. You also know my friend. Hello, Jacopo. Belbo turned pale. We said goodbye. Allier expressed pleasure that we knew each other. I consider our mutual acquaintance to be one of the most genuine creatures I ever had the good fortune to know. In her freshness she incarnates—allow an old man of learning this fancy—the Sophia, exiled on this earth. But, my sweet Sophia, I haven't had time to let you know. The promised evening has been postponed for a few weeks. I'm so sorry. It doesn't matter, Lorenza said. I'll wait. Are you going to the bar? she asked us, or rather commanded us. Good, I'll stay here for a half hour or so. Simon's giving me one of his elixirs. You should try them, but he says they're only for the elect. Then I'll join you. Allier smiled with the air of an indulgent uncle. He had her take a seat, then accompanied us to the door. Out in the street again we headed for Pilades in my car. Belbo was silent. We didn't talk all the way there. But at the bar the spell had to be broken. I hope I haven't delivered you into the hands of a lunatic, I said. No, Belbo said. The man is keen, subtle. It's just that he lives in a world different from ours. Then he added grimly, or almost. 